Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hello, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to, to the James, James Bond ATZ podcast. podcast. Join us as three lifelong 007 fans go on a journey of discovery. We're on a mission to discover everything we can about cinema's greatest spy films. By learning about the people who made them in front of the camera and behind. The James Bond A to Z podcast is in no way affiliated with James Bond, Eon or the Fleming Estate. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we can get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us at podcast at jamesbond8z.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the second episode of the James Bond A to Z podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. If this is the first time you've listened, uh, welcome new listener. If this is not, then welcome as well (laughs) on the James Bond A to Z podcast this week. It's quite an interesting show, a bit more specific than last week's. Uh, What's coming up? Well, we're going to be talking about David Arnold. So obviously a pretty big, important musical character across quite a lot of the later films that uh, we'll be talking about. Uh, So we'll be taking a look into the films he's been involved with, who he's worked with, how he got involved in it, and the kind of legacies he's left uh, so far with the Bond series. We'll also be covering one of the more iconic things when you think of Bond Aston Martin. So we'll be looking at the the journey that 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 brand has had across the Bond franchise. So on with the show. A is for Arnold, David Arnold. So David Arnold, born 23rd of January 1962. He is an English film composer and he's best known in our context, for scoring five James Bond films. Tomorrow Never Dies, The World Is Not Enough, Die Another Day, Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace. He's also well known for scoring Stargate, Independence Day, Godzilla and also television series like Little Britain and Sherlock. Mm. So I'm going to let you two talk about his work on the Bond films, but first we just need to jump into his, uh, well, basically where the launch pad for David Arnold getting into the world of Bond. 
which is a 1997 album called Shaken and Stirred, the David Arnold James Bond project. Now, you may have heard this, may not have heard this. I think this weekly this came out when we were at secondary school and we were obsessed. Well, I would, I would say this is one of the things that got me into Bond, really. Uh, th- th- this album came out quite early in my interest in Bond and uh, it's probably you know started an obsession with, well, not only Bond, but a lot of the artists that were on it. Propellerheads was... I was obsessed with them as you were as I was because of this album yeah yeah very much put 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 Bond into a sort of a, a, con, a contemporary context I guess it made it kind of cool at the time I think um, yeah so talking about um, David Arnold he he um, he and there's loads of interviews with him online you'll you'll find he's very talkative happy to talk about bond all the time uh, he talks a lot about how his first bond film that got him into the um in uh, being a bond fan was you only live twice he he watched it at a children's birthday party at british legion hall um yeah and he just fell fell in love with the bond films and 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 particularly with john barry's music he said it looked exotic and it sounded incredible so uh, Arnold is from uh, Luton. He's um, Hertfordshire, so uh, he went to sixth form college there. And, and he, he, while he was at college, he became friends with a director called Danny Cannon, and and he went on to write music for Danny Cannon's short films. So from there, then they made their debut together, the major film debut in 1993, with a film called The Young Americans, which stars Harvey Keitel. I don't think I've seen that one. I don't think either of you two have. Or no, no. no. But anyway, Arnold composed the music for that song and also created a song for it called Play Dead by Bjork. Um, That song hit number 12 in the pop charts. And that was really his first song that he'd he'd produced and released. And actually, it's a a great song, a real sort of showcase for what he could do with Bond. It's very Bond-esque. And so from that, um, in in 94, Arnold landed the gig of uh, working on MGM's uh, science fiction film Stargate, Mm -hmm, which I think we all agree is a great movie. So obviously this is, according to the book, uh, Some Kind of Hero, which is a great book, by the way, by Matthew Field and AJ Chowdhury. This is where David Arnold first discussed working on Bond with MGM. It was before GoldenEye was released and while he was working on Stargate. So there's no more detail on that, but that's he was sort of in that in that world working on yeah. Stargate when MGM spoke to him about Bond for the first time. So Roland Emmerich asked Dave, David Arnold to compose music for these next two movies which would be Independence Day, for which David Arnold won a Grammy, and also for Godzilla. Um, and Godzilla, uh, you'll probably remember, has a great soundtrack as well, great pop soundtrack to it. So it was after the success of Stargate and Independence Day, which obviously just put his name on the map in Hollywood, it, that really spurred him on to create this Shaken and Stirred album. He really he sees music, songs, as being like a really pure art form, and... He'd always wanted to put music out as an artist, but like you know, who, who's gonna who's gonna like just agree to make a record with him? Like who is he? Like he's no one, right at this point. But mm. when he was on that riding high on that success, it, it spurred him on to to start asking people to collaborate on it. He wanted to do Bond because you know he loves the songs, he loves the music, he wanted to make it contemporary, and so he started then asking various artists to do now it took him two years to make this record from 95 to 97 because of all the different people he wanted to work with they weren't available at the time he just basically kept banking the songs as he was going ready to make the album so the people that he asked to work on it are from this is the album tracks from 1 to 12 David McCormick on Diamonds Are Forever Amy Mann on Nobody Does It Better he worked with Left Field on Space March I uh, worked with Pulp on All Time High Shara Nelson on Moonraker LTJ Bookham on the 
James Bond theme, Chrissy Hind on Live and Let Die, Martin Fry on Thunderball, Natasha Atlas on From Russia with Love, Propellerheads, as we mentioned, with their version of Honor Majesty's Secret Service, Iggy Pop for We Have All the Time in the World. So it's a great set of artists. Uh, and in 2014, uh, David Arnold did an interview with IndieWire and he said, I thought I'd like to make a record of my favourite Bond themes for fun. And he fin- and I financed it myself in the early stages, recording oh, wow. three or four songs and then taking them to record companies to see if they'd be interested in taking it on. So it's very much a passion project for him. So while he was recording these songs at Studio One at Air Studios, he met uh, George Martin, who was looking after Air Studios at the time. He's the famous Beatles producer. And George Martin, who knew what David Arnold was working on, said, do you want to come and meet John Barry? Because John Barry was in the building. So then that's where they met. So then they became great friends, John Barry and and David Arnold. Um, George Martin, of course, scored Live and Let Die. So that's like Mm. three great Bond composers together. It's amazing, amazing Mm. to think of, really. So while he was making these tracks, he would send them the, the music and the artwork to Eon for their sort of approval to keep them in the loop, to keep them happy so that they wouldn't cut, clamp down on the copyright side. And it was while he was doing this, which I'm sure you'll come on to, is that they started to use some of his music on the Bond songs as a temporary sort of temporary uh, filler and I'll let you, I don't know if you're going to do the HMV story or if I will, but... Um, no, you can, you can do the HMV story. Well, let's just talk about the record coming out first and then and then we can move on to that. But so the, so the first single released was On Her Majesty's Secret Service. That was released on the 6th of October in 1997. And I it's unbelievable to think it peaked at number seven in the top 10 of the UK singles chart, which is insane when you wow. think about it. Yep. The album was then released a couple of weeks later. That peaked at number 11 in the album's chart. And then in November, they released Diamonds Are Forever and that peaked at 39. So that didn't really trouble the charts. Um they did record two songs that didn't make the cut. One was You Only Live Twice, recorded by Bjork. Bjork? Bjork? Anyway. Um, Whichever one you want. She wasn't happy with it, apparently. She thought that it didn't improve on the original version. So she asked them not to use it. You can listen to it online. It's, it's out there. It's available. And then Goldfinger was going to be recorded by Debbie Harry and Skunk and Nancy. Um, but they, the scheduling got in the way of that. And they then would have had to have delayed the album. Um, and so that in the end, they just dropped it, um, obviously. And David, David Arnold said that was obviously a huge shame. Yeah. He's been asked about making a follow up album several times. And he says there are a whole bunch more songs. Um, he says that six more songs from the album have come out since it was released. Um, and he thinks that there's a record that someone else should make. But because he feels he's already done it. So the story goes that once he'd released the album, uh, Barbara Broccoli was in HMV somewhere in London And she was looking for composers to compose a James Bond film. Uh, And the guy behind the counter says, you should listen to David Arnold. He just brought this record out. I think he'd be perfect. And that's the rest they say is history. And he went on to record five, five scores with them. Yeah. It's a a great album. If uh, I I do feel like it peaks with Honor Majesty's Secret Service, though. That is an incredible track, though. Yeah, 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 it's brilliant. But I think I think it just came around at the right time for certain people because that was the kind of high point of Big Beat and 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 when and it Big Beat mixes really well with classical music, so that that blending of those two things was just and it and it that probably shaped the soundtracks that followed because they heard that sound and went this works this mixture of modern music and the classic style actually sounds good with what we're trying to do in most cases and i'll go on to that in a minute with the with, with the soundtracks but um 
it's it it was almost like that whole resurgence of bond and it wasn't just we're making new films they they quite cleverly managed to mix contemporary music with a very classic style of bond which which is what that album is a lot of the songs uh, stay very true to the bond style but they are very fresh and new so i bet a lot of people listened to that album and went who didn't even like bond but they liked you know they, they liked some of the artists in it people who liked like Bookham and stuff like that were probably weren't Bond fans, but it opened it all up to them. It was that Amazing whole Brit, Brit pop, cool Britannia sort of era, wasn't it? Like David McCormick yeah. with that song that he did with Bernard Butler is like one of my favourite of all time. And yeah, I think he just assembled a great co- collection of artists, didn't they? Well, it's like an ape- it's an apex of music in, in many ways. So it's not just it's not just a dance album. It's not just a Brit pop album. It just combines all of the modern music that was around at that time in lots of different formats. And people who like the album, it's a very eclectic mix of music. It's 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 really interesting to listen to. And some of the artists on it at the time, I remember when it came out, I didn't know who they were. And it opened them up to me and I started listening more to, to some of the other um, artists on there, which was an amazing opening for it. And I'd, I'd be interested to find out non-Bond fans if it opened up Bond to them and they actually started going, oh, I really like this album that's at number 11. Let's listen to some more Bond music. Let's watch some Bond films. And um would be interesting to see if that actually was the case. But yeah, amazing album. So, Shaken, Shaken and Stirred, the album, we know had a big impact on... David Arnold and his, his his entrance into the world of Bond. Um, he actually, I've got a quote here from from John Barry, which quite quite nicely sums up his view on it. He was very faithful to the melodic and harmonic content, but he's added a whole other rhythmic freshness and some interesting casting in terms of the artists chosen to do the songs. I think it's a terrific album. I'm very flattered. So that's that's on David Arnold using John John Barry music in the Shaken and Third album, but it's something that leads on to probably why. Broccoli and um, Wilson said we want this guy because I imagine this happens quite a lot with the Bond kind of series of, of, of films and people involved in it if they see somebody that works they want to keep that person because it's so so difficult to find somebody who really gets the Bond style and can, can fit with that and in many ways Arnold is he's just a, he's a new John Barry he 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 has very similar styles to what John Barry was doing he was he was taking modern music and mixing it with a very classic style and if you look at Goldeneye which um, which was Eric Serra uh, that and it just didn't work really it was very experimental Eric, wasn't it very experimental but it was experimental in a similar way what, what Eric Serra was trying to do was actually very similar to what David Arnold was doing he was taking modern music and mixing it with a, an almost classic style but not in a way that really worked he probably just didn't get John Barry and what he'd done previously in, in, in those films he he understood the concept probably but I don't think I, I've never read anything about Eric Serra being a massive Bond fan or having that kind of link with, with that stuff he's certainly never done a, a Bond compilation album to, to show how yeah. much he was interested in those things so so David Arnold is probably you know this, they saw him they saw, they saw Shaken and Stirred and, and, and what he can do and thought Christ this guy we need to get him involved. He loves Bond and he's he's got exactly what we want. So that's where they pulled him into Tomorrow Never Dies, um, straight after Shaken and Stirred. And um, he started pulling together this this album. And and I remember, we, we talked a bit earlier, Butler, about um, where, you know, we used to listen to Shaken and Stirred at school and, and propeller heads. So I remember having that, that song on loop in art classes and just listening to it over and over again. The, 
what's it? It must be like a twelve-minute version of it, which Those is so yeah. orchestral. It's absolutely phenomenal. But the Tomorrow Never Dies album is quite similar to that, and and it takes a lot of the kind of styling from from specifically that Propellerhead song. And and there's an Alex Gifford track on the Tomorrow Never Dies soundtrack, um, which which takes a lot from from that style. So. So when he when he's pulled together this Tomorrow Never Dies soundtrack and and if you go and listen to it now it is quite groundbreaking how he does it it's it's such a eclectic mix of sounds that he does with some of them being almost like dance songs some of them just orchestral songs but it seamlessly goes between those and you can if you watch the Tomorrow Never Dies film that the backing music is so good throughout it it just fits perfectly with the scenes and there's various bits where um, he's kind of some of it's almost like tongue-in-cheek as well, which is quite a difficult thing to do with Bond. But in the, the earlier films, a lot of the soundtracks are quite fun. There's a fun element to some of them. You look at some of even the Connery ones, there's almost jokes written into the ensemble of the song when um, in Goldfinger, where he's kind of he sees Pussy Galore and stuff like that. The little musical styles that he adds to that is, is really good. And it's something that David Arnold does in, in Tomorrow Never Dies. So yeah, he did the Tomorrow Never, uh, Tomorrow Never Dies soundtrack. Really nice mix of music. Um, the interesting thing about Tomorrow Never Dies is how he kind of started pulling together these influences from all different sorts of artists that he'd been working with. Apparently, there there was a very competitive process to that title song, which was eventually the Cheryl Crow track. But there were apparently 12 different submissions, which included songs from Swan, uh, Swan Lee, Pulp, Saint Etienne, which I didn't know about, Mark Almond, um, and of course, he wrote the title track, or his own version of the title track, Surrender, with Don Black, which um, which which was originally meant to be sang by McCalment, who did the um, original recording, but then it was picked up by KD Lang. And that is just, that song is just an absolute mm-hmm. perfect view of David Arnold being an almost modern John Barry, because it's very similar to Goldfinger, Diamonds Are Forever. It's got that really thick powerful like ballad style to it it's quite deep it's quite dark and straight away if you listen to that song you go you 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 think this guy must have worked with john barry on this song it's 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 like spot on with some of the older ones so um it's a shame that it really didn't get picked to be the the, the title track because it's so you know it's so traditional and in, in, in the style of, of of the older bond films but obviously it didn't get picked but interestingly the uh, I'm going to be careful not to go into a big detailed review of the Tomorrow Never Dies soundtrack here and just just cover off the David Arnold stuff. But the, the it was changed quite late on. So interestingly, a lot of the score itself, as well as the the final track being Surrender, uses musical notes and scores elements from Surrender. None of the Cheryl Crow song is used throughout the score. It's just the Surrender track. So it's actually by far the most important musical track to that film and the score itself the whole score follows barry's classical style in both composition and, and the orchestration and and uses so many kind of modern influences in, in how it works so the final the final album had it, there was a, a song by moby on it as well so um that's david arnold working with another popular modern contemporary musician which he clearly does quite a lot he's got a he's got a lot um in in terms of uh he likes working with new people. He likes creating eclectic ways of doing doing Bond music. And the hallmarks of, of this thing can be sound from uh, sounds that you'll hear in Independence Day as well. The, the big, big snare drums, 
um, complex brass instruments and yeah it's just a really powerful style and i think there's a point where um the, the brass the brass orchestral music that it uses is actually quite similar to from rush with love and quite if you know that soundtrack quite well you take a lot from it you can you can hear it in tomorrow never dies yeah so a big album lots going on with it and um it's uh yeah it's, it's it had a massive impact on that kind of bond franchise in, in a lot of ways tomorrow never dies has it's the start of the Pierce Brosnan era for a lot of people. They really do like that film, and that's the same with the soundtrack. I'm not. I really liked Goldeneye, and I'll, I'll be honest. I don't really mind the Goldeneye soundtrack that much. I think it works quite well, but it it, it, it sounds it different, doesn't it? Yeah, it sounds different. But I know, I know that we discussed this before, and uh, it's not a widespread view that that's a, an excellent soundtrack. <laughs> but there's another interesting quote from Broccoli and uh, Wilson was that. David Arnold said they wanted to take things forward but keep it Bond. Uh, in terms of shaken and stirred, I think it indicated to them that there was a way of keeping what was good about the old stuff and making it contemporary. And you see this all the time with Broccoli and, and Wilson, and, and it's the same with, you know, World Is Not Enough making uh, the uh, strong female lead as the antagonist. It's trying to constantly develop this Bond thing, and it happened a lot in the 90s. Which is why David Arnold came around, really, because he was moving it forward while still keeping the same thing. They could have got any, you know, composer to come in who would do an orchestral tr- s- score like John Barry, but they they wanted to do more of it. They wanted to move it at steps forward. Interesting fact: the DVD version of the film has an isolated music track setting, which the allows the viewer to watch the film with just the background music. Not entirely sure what that means, but I know I, I had the DVD at the time and never actually watched that. I want to I want to have a go with that. Um, Good for lip syncing, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna probably dig out that DVD somewhere at home unless my parents have chucked it away. So that was tomorrow never dies, and uh, it it did relatively well. It wasn't um, it wasn't by like one of the biggest Bond albums around, but it was it was a crowd pleaser and a Bond fan pleaser. It kind of brought it brought it back to the new Piers Brosnan era and there are a lot of nice elements of Tomorrow Never Dies that they kind of pushed it forward with and then of course he went on to do the The World Is Not Enough um, and The World Is Not Enough is I've, I've sat and listened to all these soundtracks the, the Brosnan era soundtracks and I think they are very similar in many ways which you'd expect from David Arnold doing them he's, he's, he's written these, these soundtracks and he knew that Tomorrow Never Dies worked and a lot of people have commented on World Is Not Enough and Die Another Day and they've kind of said Tomorrow Never Dies is the strongest of them it's it's more interesting There's, he, he does a lot more with it I don't think that's necessarily massively true I think Tomorrow Never Dies is is good because it was new and it was fresh and he didn't really change it for The World Is Not Enough and Die Another Day they are quite similar in the way that he's he's tried to do it so it's just not that exciting they're not I don't think they're bad soundtracks but they're just they're not quite as forward facing um, in, again, he worked on uh, with Don Black on the title track. Um, in this case, the Garbage Song, um, which did very well. Actually, that got quite high in the uh, UK charts. I've got it written down here somewhere. I'll come to that in a minute. But originally for that album, Arnold intended to use the song "Only Myself to Blame," written by D- David Arnold and Don Black, and sung by Scott Walker, which is actually a really interesting song. I'd never heard it before researching this. Have you Have you heard of that one? Yeah, no. we we talk about it in the Don Black episode. <laughs> oh, nice. Well, that's coming up. <laughs> and then, uh, but that track was meant to be the, the 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 closing track, but it was replaced with a techno remix of the James Bond theme, 
by Paul Oakenfold, which I, I don't ever remember listening to as part of the film, but I think it must have been used on adverts. And it's one of those ones that somebody makes a documentary about the new Bond films. They'll stick it on the, the, the opening sequence because it's just like an instrumental um, jazz. It's, it's not as good as the Moby version. and I don't think it did anywhere near as well uh, as that when it came out. Interestingly, during The World Is Not Enough, David Arnold wrote two new score kind of uh, repertoires. So you know like how John Barry uh, and uh, in some, uh, some of the other composers who worked on the early films, they, they create these new music um, styles and, and, and songs for the early ones and they get reused later, later, over and over again. What's the name of the James Bond? Uh, no, it's not 007. Oh, it might be 007. Uh, it's in You Only Live Twice, which recurs later on, and you, you kind of kind of bring it back. So he comes up with two new ones in The World Is Not Enough, which then get used in Die Another Day and can be used later on, and they become almost like Bond themes that can be reused. And they, there's a collection of these that they, that you get across all of the all of the films. Interesting fact: Neil Hannon of the Divine Comedy also wrote a theme song for the film, but it was rejected. Didn't know that before. On working with Don Black, um, David Arnold said. It was easy because Don is a genius. He has a way of writing a lyric which, on paper, you might not think is particularly groundbreaking, but when you sing it, you realise it hugs the contours of the singer's mouth. Ooh. I thought it was quite mm. a nice yeah. way. I mean, he, Arnold clearly loves these these guys and they've had a massive impact on him, so it's uh, not surprising that he's so complimentary. And then, yeah, so the, the title song, The World's Enough, was sung by Garbage, but didn't chart in the US. In the UK, it peaked at the number 11 spot on the charts. The soundtrack album went to number 106 in the UK charts, so not not, in, not, not high on the <laughs> list, but I don't think many Bond albums do do very well um, no, you in, in, imagine in the so. charts, really. Uh, there are two versions of the soundtrack. Uh, the second one uh, includes a tw- 20th track called Sweetest Coma Again, sung by Luna C with DJ Crush. I haven't heard that one. I might listen to that one later. <laughs> uh, but according to um, David Arnold, his favourite scene in any Bond film, which he scored, uh, is the scene between Bond and Elektra, where they're in the bedroom and they're being tender with each other. His exact words. So um, if you if you rewatch that film, watch that and think, well, this is the one that he actually was really proud of. Uh, and then there was the third film, Die Another Day. And really, there's not that much to say about Die Another Day in terms of the soundtrack and, and his styling, because it's very... It, it follows the the format that you'd expect. It's not that exciting. It's it's, it's a, there's a lot to it, but I don't think it's that eclectic, and I don't think he works with many kind of interesting people on it. Um, it's not a bad soundtrack again, and if you listen to it, you kind of go, I can see this, I can remember the scenes where this was in, but it just wasn't as as bold or as, or as interesting. I like Obviously, the um, the Cuba the Cuba track's a good one. That's quite yeah. nice and lively, and that's it, it sort of steers away from classic yeah. Bond. It's yeah, that is fun. an interesting one. Yeah, yeah, I did. I listened to that, and I, I thought, oh, what's that? forgot about mm. this one? Quite, uh, quite exciting. But yeah, and obviously he didn't. He didn't write the, uh, the the title track on that one with Madonna. I don't think he was involved with that. Um, but yeah, so there's two themes from uh, used in the film that are actually used from the previous film. The ones I've mentioned, where he's written these themes and they've been reused, so he's instantly used them in in the next film. Then in 2017, it says here the. Um, the company La La Land Records released a massive expanded edition of the the soundtrack, and it is massive. It's like forty yes tracks or something like that. You can find it on YouTube. No idea where they got all the tracks from, uh, but yeah, worth having a look at that just to see how big it is and just see the the, the the variety of songs on there. And then 
really at the end of that David Arnold uh, was an interview about all his Bond, Bond songs that he'd done and he was talking about writing multiple songs for Bond and if it's difficult and if where it kind of you know what what the hurdles are and he says it becomes slightly more difficult the more you write because your initial response to the first one has probably used up all of your ideas um that you had and the ones that were most appropriate once you've exhausted that you have to go back to it and think of new ways uh, basically doing the same thing which pretty much sums up if what it's like to listen to, to those to those albums because he can't come up with new things cuba maybe was one of his examples of trying something new but it's got to fit with the scenes and the scenes in the bond films are probably quite similar to a, to a, to a to a writer trying to invent the music because you know it's an action film you've got to do a bond action scene you're fairly you're fairly stuck with it um but he does say that there aren't any really any constraints to writing a bond theme they they have a core dna about them but if you think about them as songs in their entirety they're all very very different i'm not sure how true that is because they're not all very very Mm. different but what he's saying i think is that you have the freedom to to try stuff and they will actually allow you to do that if the song's good enough if it's not you probably end up with a, a very similar one but really that's 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 as far as that's that's up until die another day so three of the um uh Pierce brosnan films interesting set obviously he's he pulled himself into the world of bond and and did a very good job with those um and which continued into the craig era so um that takes us on to you brendan and and what went on next yeah, well, it's interesting you you just finished there saying like he couldn't do much. Uh you can't do much with Bond and you're quite restricted because with a with a soft reboot that that happened with Casino Royale, yeah. uh he was given that freedom essentially. He was um, probably desperate for that, wasn't he? And they said to him, We're gonna reboot it. He was like, What does that mean? I can yeah. <laughs> try something new. Yeah. Um so it it was a announced they announced it that Chris Cornell was would be um, composing and performing the title song together with Dave, David Arnold and David Arnold said that it, they needed somebody who could sing the way Daniel acted it had to be mm. Chris there was no one else so um, it seems that it was very set on on Chris Cornell and, and he had an excitement about working with someone like that so they spent 10 days apart writing the song Cornell was writing the lyrics based on the interpretations of Daniel Craig's performance, so he was given like rough edits of the of the film, so he could write the write the music as best matched how he felt, and re- that really comes across, I think, in the final song. You can tell. So when they got yeah. back together, David Arnold and Chris Cornell, David Arnold found that there was only a few tweaks that he needed to do, really, to sort of bring it all together and and mix his ideas and and Chris Cornell's ideas. He actually says it's one of the easiest projects he ever did during his Bond career, um, and wow. which which he says that is down to Chris Cornell's exceptional talents. Wow. What a theme well song, done, Cornell! It absolutely fantastic theme song. Um, Ar- David Arnold considers it one of his favourite works, and he enjoys how they were able to make a theme that feels like a an extension of of the Bond theme, but also sounding unique. Because yeah. obviously it was important with this soft reboot. He sort of got free reign because he didn't want to use the classic Bond theme. So you'll notice that throughout the whole of the soundtrack for Casino Royale, it uses pieces of the Bond theme right mm. up until the very end. So yeah. it's it's as though as you, as Daniel Craig's Bond learns and, and becomes makes mistakes, becomes Bond, those little flourishes come in. 
And he yep. said, I put a hint of the Bond theme to start sowing the seeds of it as we go through. So when he wins the Aston Martin in the game of cards, you hear it for the first time. When he tries on the tuxedo in the hotel room and we see him adjusting himself in the mirror the second time and so on. And it all leads up to that crescendo at the end, that final scene where he says the iconic line, Bond, James Bond, and you've got that massive moment where it all comes in. He said, mm. we cut to black and shabam, it seems incredibly exciting. And yeah. you can't argue with that. It, it, it really did. And that was all to reflect Bond's immaturity and, and inexperience. So it really is a great example of matching the soundtrack to what's happening on yeah. screen. And you've got, to have a, you've got to have a composer who understands it to do that because if you're just a, a normal, you know, you've come in, brought on film to do triple X or something like that, you're probably yeah. not that engaged. You, you wouldn't do that with a character because no, nobody cares exactly. about that. He brought up. the heritage and the legacy of the, however many years it was at that point, 40, yeah. 40 years or whatever. He's brought it all together for that moment, hasn't he? That's, it's quite incredible, yeah. really. And he's probably as excited as the next person to see Bond do that. So he, he can understand that. Whereas if you just pulled in some random all right soundtrack orchestral guy he'll just be like yeah i know this is an action scene i'll do that this is a this is a love scene but there's more to it than that isn't there and there's, the, the music a lot really is a the music is a just a part of the story when it comes to bond if that's not right it's uh, it doesn't quite work absolutely yeah there's a part of the track entitled vespa which is in the soundtrack that was actually reused in a sherlock episode yeah entitled oh, the final problem so that's in the third episode of the fourth series and the track's mm. called Pick Up. And so I guess if you compared them side by side, you could probably pick out the bits that um, overlap. Yeah. Um, so moving on from Casino Royale, which was a, a massive hit anyway as a film and also the soundtrack, Quantum of Solace, which was a natural progression and a kind of like mm. a, a part two of Casino Royale. It literally started where Casino Royale ended and so this one was scored quite quite differently because mark forster wanted to um wanted david arnold to write the mu music before seeing the film interesting so so he gave him the script and then david arnold went away and wrote the score and then forster edited the resulting tracks to the film so he had the score and then he put the film together well, to that's that an interesting score. way of working yeah so it's mm. a, a different a different way of doing it. Again, the Bond theme, it's not very used very much in Quantum of Solace, and makes the appearance at the end again, as it did in Casino Royale this time with the the gun barrel, because it was right at the end. Yeah. But you've you've got sort of little flourishes throughout, but but nothing, no major. Pro probably a similar scenario to. He's done because he's done something new there. He's done something interesting that he's 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 probably come up with that idea. On this is great new idea. It's a new bond. They're going to do that. Yeah. Again, do it in the second one. It's not that exciting to use that same format. It's 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 a problem with doing consistent yeah. bond films and and being stuck in in that kind of rut of what, the narrative. What you were yeah. To do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a a riff that does feature quite often throughout the score for Quantum of Solace uh, that is exactly the same as the chorus in the Shirley Bassey song, No Good, Ab no Good About Goodbye. Oh, interesting. Which was written by David Arnold and Don Black, right. um, released a year after Quantum of Solace. So a lot of people thought it was a rejected song, theme song for Quantum of Solace. But 
but it wasn't. But however, he he has used so which way around it would would have been. He's he's used those riffs in Quantum of Solace and then gone on to finish this song. Yeah. Uh, with with the the same the same song. It's in about four or five tracks. You can hear it. Yeah. I suppose that's a, that's an interesting thing. If you're somebody like David Arnold, he's involved in so many different things. It's just yeah. going to happen, isn't it? He's just going to. Yeah. I like that one. I'm going to use it in this. That's right for this one. Well, it's like when you we we'll talk about Monty Norman and the and the original, yeah, Bond theme. The riffs that he uses in that theme, he's used many times in different uh, yeah. in, mm. in different um, compositions. I guess it's just kind of natural, isn't it? You have these great riffs. It actually happens quite a lot in music. I think you have these great riffs that you know have existed yeah. for one thing and they get recycled for something else. And that's just what what's the, what's the phrase? It's great artists. No, what is it? Good artists borrow, great artists steal. Um, and I guess yeah. that, that counts for your own yeah. music as well. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So moving on from there, David Arnold stepped aside from from Bond because Sam Mendes came on board, and Sam Mendes tends to work with Thomas Newman. So, mm-hmm. yeah, brother of David Randy Arnold. Newman. Pardon, Randy Bro- Newman, brother of Randy Newman. That's right. Yeah, I'd like to hear a Randy Newman uh, Bond <laughs> score. <laughs> I don't want to hear that. I never want to hear that. <laughs> So yeah, he sort of stepped aside of his own accord, really, um, before it was even announced. Just assuming that Sam Mendes would want to work with Thomas Newman, and, and that was the case. But it's a shame he's always that because um, the, I mean, the, the the style of the film changes a bit after Quantum of Solace, and it it'd yeah. probably be a little bit different. But yeah, it's a bit of a shame. Yeah, it would be would be very interesting. Although Thomas Newman does a very very good job, and that Skyfall yeah. score is great. Yeah, that yeah. Skyfall. Yeah, you'd you'd be. You could believe that as a David Arnold score, mm. I think. Yeah. So David Arnold's very candid about his return to Bond if if it ever happens, and he told Variety that it's a no news situation. I've heard nothing. My pencil is always sharpened for him if James comes around again. If he doesn't, I'll be as excited to watch the new film as anyone else. I still love him, and I love all of the team over there. So, seems like it's a great relationship. Um, yeah he's a real good spokesperson for Bond isn't he he's always happy to talk about it yeah Yeah. and so Thomas Newman did Spectre and then we've got someone new on No Time to Die also haven't we Hans Zimmer yeah and he replaced someone last minute didn't he so it's unusual that they didn't ask David Arnold back at that point when they had to replace the other person at last minute but um, yeah I thought that yeah, so so be it, I guess. When the time's right, like you say, he'll be ready and waiting. Whether whether his time will come again, I don't know. But he 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 gave great five great soundtracks, and his yeah. his place in yeah. the Hall of Fame is assured, right? Yeah, there's got to be some sort of element to the when when a Bond film is made, they must review who is involved in it after the success and how well it, it is critically received. So, mm-hmm. I imagine. You know, after Quantum of Solace, that was a very tricky film from from the perspective as of, of critics and and from the box office. Um, yeah. So after that point, they probably said, "Look, we well actually in that instance, he always works with um, that guy anyway." But it's probably you know they look back and they go, "That film didn't do so well. Maybe we'll give someone else a go if we can find if we can find someone else." But um, yeah, it's a shame. He's he's one of the one of the big ones, isn't he? For sure, David Arnold. We salute you. A is for Aston Martin. Um, so Aston Martin is the car brand, and it's synonymous with James Bond. Uh, and, the, and, and the and the and the car that really everyone connects 
bond with to Aston Martin is the Aston Martin DB5. The DB5 is a, a, according to Wikipedia, a British luxury grand tourer. And it was made by Aston Martin and designed by an Italian, they call it Italian coach builder. Now, I've never heard of this phrase before, what a coach builder, but it's Carrozzeria Touring Superleggera. So I think that's when the mm. car company will bring in an outside firm to do the designing and the styling and that sort of stuff. Yeah. Anyway, the DB5 is the most well-known and most sought-after Aston, Aston Martin car ever. Aston Martin, obviously, being a British brand. But the DB5 only ever had a production run of about 1,023 cars. So there's only ever been wow. 1,023 Aston Martin DB5s made. And they were made between 1963 and 1965. So the Bond connection. So they first appeared in 1964's Goldfinger. And it went on to appear in Thunderball, GoldenEye... Tomorrow Never Dies, Casino Royale, Skyfall, Spectre, and it's about to play a huge role in No Time to Die. It's also appeared in tons of James Bond video games as well, and also video games that aren't related to James Bond. For example, it's in Grand Theft Auto yeah. as, the, as the Bond car. Uh, so, right, so for Goldfinger, Ian Fleming, in the book, Bond drives a service pool DB Mark III. So that's from the MI, from the Secret Service's service pool of cars. And it's a Mark III. But the Mark III is just a racing model. It was introduced in 1957. And when they were making the film or when they were preparing to make the film, the producers and, and production designer Ken Adams said that the car that Bond was going to drive caused so much debate. And what they eventually, uh, they looked at all sorts of cars, like what would suit Bond? What is the right car for Bond? And they settled on the DB5 because it was the most expensive British sports car available at the time. They thought this is the prop for Bond to drive in this film. Because previously to, the, to that, he doesn't really drive, does he, in From Russia With Love and Doctor No? Uh, he does drive it for Russia with Love, but I can't remember remember many scenes of him. Well, driving. in in the books, he he drives this Bentley, doesn't he? This old this old Bentley, because I think it's the the sort of car that Fleming drove. But anyway, this is this is mm-hmm. Goldfinger. So Harry Saltzman, producer, he contacted Aston Martin. They weren't interested. They get load. They, at the time, they got loads of requests from film producers. It would have cost them more than it was worth just to give them, lend them the cars to use in the film. Anyway, he persisted. He was like convinced him in the end. And they loaned him two DB5s. So this is a concept car at the time. It's not a real car. It's just a concept. Mm-hmm. So then Ken Adam and his team drew up all the gadgets and everything. And the special effects wizard, uh, John Steers, he did the conversion. So he converted one of the cars with all the working gadgets. And when they were shooting with this car, when it was at Pinewood, the, the, the crew members would just like loan it and take it out for, for drives and go for lunch in it. <laughs> And apparently it, um, yeah, it, it caused like the production team, like just nightmares of them, like just people just taking it out for a drive. It, apparently it's a 25,000 pound car at the time. So, so there's two versions used in the film. One is a road version. One is a gadget version. They took the road version out to Switzerland for the, the chase through the mountains. It got damaged en route. So then they had to send out the gadget one to um, Switzerland. And this is, this is the car with the famous license plate BMT 216A. And Bond eventually he writes it off in that bit in the in the factory where he smashes against a brick wall. So that's that's the two cars used in the film. Now there were two more promotional DB5s that they got from Aston Martin, and they were used to promote the film around the world. Now two of them were sent to the 1964 New York World's Fair, where they called it the most famous car in the world. And then the two cars then went on a promotional tour across America. So one of those cars Connery drove 
to the French premiere. Sean Connery drove one of the DB5s to the French premiere of Gold Goldfinger whilst he was in France shooting Thunderball. So that's a nice little bit of symmetry there. Yeah, yeah. He drove the car to the premiere. The video is amazing, and you can see like one of the, a, bond, a female Bond fan jumping through the window of this car to get his autograph. Obviously, really famously, there's a the, the, there's a Corgi model of the car, the, the DB5, which almost became mm. as famous as the car in the film itself. It had all the working gadgets, and it was the biggest selling toy of the year in 1964. And there was also a famous Air, Airfix model as well, which was released and uh, it didn't stop until like 1970, I think. So the BMT 216A, that famous license plate, that car returns in Thunderball. It's been fitted with some extra gadgets. It's got two rear-facing water cannons, uh, which Bond uses to escape from the Spectre, to, to gun, the Spectre gunmen, and he drives it to Shrublands, the health clinic there. So that's how that car fits into the Thunderball there. So those four original cars, they've all got unique chassis numbers. And if you're a Aston Martin DB5 James Bond nut, there's like books and books about these four cars. So I recommend mm. go do some research, look online. The stories about all four of them would fill a podcast in itself. So one of them is missing and it's pre- presumed to have been destroyed as part of an insurance claim in the 90s. Another one was bought at auction in 20, uh, 2010 uh, for $4.6 million. Oof. One of the promotional cars is in Holland's National Automobile Museum. Why in Holland? Again, that's a story that you need to read for yourself. It's, it's crazy that what's happened to these four cars. And the other one most recently sold at auction, another one of the promo cars, in 2019 for $6.4 million. So these four cars are like yes. the holy grail of movie cars. Yeah. yeah. So then, amazingly, there's a 30-year absence from the film series before the, the Aston Martin DB5 comes back. Obviously, the Aston yep. Martin stayed in the... When you'll come to that. We'll talk about that in a minute. But the DB5 pops up in uh, 1995's GoldenEye. Now, this is a new registration plate, BMT 214A. It's got its own gadget. It's not as it's not as tricked out as um, as the uh, the gold knight as the Goldfinger car, um, and it's obviously in that great chase sequence with the psychiatric evaluator and Xenia on a top. Uh, again, there's a fun story about this, but I, w- I won't won't go into too much detail. But basically, there's a bit in the film where they damaged the DB5 and the Ferrari that they used in the chase. They crashed into each other. And when you look at the promotional pictures of Brosnan uh, posing with the car, he stood in front of the front headlamp because <laughs> it's broken. <laughs> so all the pictures you'll see, he's perched on it in a particular way, so you can't see the headlamp because he smashed it. And the rumor That's is that, and the rumor is that the car that they loaned to Ferrari, Ferrari agreed to pay for the damages to the car themselves if they let for the Ferrari win the race in the film. So when you watch the film, the Ferrari wins the race, and that's because oh, yeah, that's a fun fact. I don't know if it's true or not. So the Golden Eye Aston Martin that is now in the New York City Spy Museum, uh, Sky Spyscape, and they bought that in 2018 for 2.6 million dollars. That same car then pops up in Tomorrow Never Dies when Bond drives to Oxford. And it also makes a very brief cameo in The World Is Not Enough. Money Penny drives Bond to the funeral, to Robert King's funeral, but it's actually the scene got deleted. Apparently, you can still see the outline of the Aston Martin at the very end of the film when M and R are trying to find Bond and they're using thermal imaging satellite. Apparently, you can see the car then. Yes, you can. Yeah, I looked into this. Yeah. So that's that. So... That's the, it's, a lo- it's a loose link, isn't it? Saying it's, it's not exactly in the film, really. Yeah, right now it's like saying it's on a postcard. It's a postcard that's on a table. Now we're in the Daniel Craig era, so 
Casino Royale, a new DB5 pops up. Now, this is where, you know, Bond supposedly acquires the the, the Aston Martin. He wins it in a poker game against Alex Dimitrios. Now, what's interesting about this car, registration plate 56526, is it's got Bahamian number plates and it's left-hand drive as opposed to right-hand drive. Mm. And so this left-hand DB5 does... it disappears after Casino Royale. We never see it again because the the car in Skyfall, which Bond has in his lockup, is the uh, right hand drive, and it's got the classic license plate on it as well. So Bond swoops to get his car. They drive to Skyfall. It's got it's got it's all its concealed weaponry back again, but the car gets blown up. Uh, then now the- you better have this all right because we're going to get loads of uh, emails if you if you've got some of this wrong. <laughs> Listen, I went down a rabbit hole with these things. <laughs> now the DB5 used in Skyfall. This was really interesting. This was an originally a green car, and it was bought at auction for about two hundred thousand uh, dollars. Sorry, two hundred thousand pounds. Like a few years before Skyfall came out, then Eon paid to have it renovated. It remains in private hands. So someone owns the Skyfall um, DB5 and it's the only DB5 which has 007 in the chassis number. So this is a really unique DB5, yeah. Yeah. So this was restored. Um, It was given the silver birch paint. They changed the interior. The car's not equipped with gadgets, but they obviously had fake ones built which have the gadgets and stuff in it. But Mm -hmm. it does have a a fake trigger button on the ejector seat. And then they use models um, for the other bits and bobs. Um, and one of those models actually got sold at auction at Christie's for about $100,000. So, like, th- these things, like, <laughs> are, are very sought after. And they often, they'll build the outside shell and put it onto, like, a Porsche body for, for using for, for, for more, like, strenuous stuff. It appears yeah. again in Spectre, because I don't know if you remember, but you see Q painstakingly, painstakingly restoring that car. And Bond drives off with it at the end in, in with Madeline Swan, and then again we're going to see the DB5 back in No Time to Die. Um, apparently, according to the Aston Martin magazine, the DB5 will have the star billing in this film, and it will appear in a uh, action-packed sequence, which we've all seen in the trailers. It's the Italy scene. It's got the it's got the the mini guns that yeah. pop out the front, and so apparently ten Aston Martin DB5s were used in that, but. Um, yeah, only two of them were real Aston Martin DB5s. The rest just had BMWs underneath them. So just a, a few fun facts before I move on from the DB5. One of the promotional Thunderball ones, uh, GoldenEye Thunderball ones, appears in the Cannonball run. Roger Moore drives the DB5. It's the only time Roger Moore gets to drive the DB5 on screen is in the Cannonball run. George Lazenby... Playing, playing Sir Roger Moore. Playing Sir Roger Moore. <laughs> George Lazenby drives a DB5 in The Return of the Man from Uncle, a TV film. And he's re- he's referred yeah. to as JB. So that's Lazenby drives the DB5. Ah, uh, yes. Brosnan yeah. does. Craig does. Timothy Dalton is the only, only Bond that doesn't get to drive a DB5 on screen. Oh, well. And then, fun fact, uh, it also appears in James Bond Jr. in animated form uh, in the very first episode. So there you go. Oh, probably won't watch that one. No. Um, in, yeah. <laughs> uh, in 2018, Aston Martin built 25 replicas of the original DB5 uh, with gadgets in the film. Each one sells for £2.75 million. They are not road legal. You cannot drive them on the road. If you buy one, you cannot drive it on the road. Perfect for the, uh, for the front porch. Yeah. Never, uh, never taken out. But there is a more affordable version weekly, which I believe you have. 
Have I? A Lego oh, version. The, uh, oh, yeah, the Lego version, yeah. <laughs> Not that much more affordable. There, it's... <laughs> No, that's a, that was that's a, that was a twelve-hour build on Christmas Day a few years ago, but it is pretty impressive. It's got a jack to see in it. Just as road legal. <laughs> Just as road legal, yeah. But I thought it was interesting yeah. that they didn't for thirty years didn't use the DB5, and it's interesting yeah. that they brought it back at the time that Cubby Broccoli was exiting the franchise, and so Cubby, I feel like he pushed Bond forward with changing everything up each film, but actually when he was exiting, they brought back the thing that. Yeah, yeah, he's probably... Mm. I think that that whole era of... I mean, Bond started off, and at the time, Bond was all new. Everything Sean Connery did was new and exciting. And then I think when Roger Moore came in, they wanted to push it forward and let's get new cars in, let's let's make it modern. But by the time Goldeneye came around, and it's probably the same with any series, whether it's a film or a book, you go, let's go back to what originally people liked about it. And and it's a classic car yeah. at that point, isn't it? It's not it's a, classic, a, it's not a yeah. 10-year-old car. It'd be like bringing like the yeah. Z8 back now, wouldn't it? it would just... Well, I can't imagine they're going to go yeah. back to the Lotus for the for the next Bond film. But um, <laughs> Why not? Yeah, I'd, I'd like to see it, but it's going to take a specific type of Bond to take over from, uh, from Craig to uh, drive around in that Lotus. But yeah, uh, but it's an incredible car, isn't it? It's, it's. I mean, you could probably show that car, the silhouette of that car to pretty much anyone and they'd go, that's Bond's car. Well, I read somewhere online that I don't know whether where they got this from, but they said it's the most recognisable car in the world and half the world's global population can can name that car from point, like, it's like the most recognisable car in the world. But I don't believe wow. that's true. I don't believe that. I always think whenever they say those kind of things, they're talking about specific capital cities around the world. They're not, it's not, it's not there's not people in like, you know, poorer countries that don't have TVs going, oh, I really like Bond. Um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't I never believe those when they say those things. But um, I don't know. Do you think it's better known than the DeLorean? Well, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah, you're probably right. Or the Ecto-1 from Ghostbusters. I don't know. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that when 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 kids, when you, well, younger people these days watch Bond films, they probably don't have the same. They don't they don't enjoy that car as much as it was originally around. So, as an old Bond fan now, I see that as a classic Bond bit of history. Whereas seeing that for the first time in Casino Royale, if you'd never seen Bond before, it probably wouldn't have that same impact. It's just he's got a nice car. I don't know. It it just it stands out as a classic, doesn't it? Like yeah. you would put it next to the modern ones, and you go, oh. And I think if you were young, you'd still notice it. There's not many. Still... There's not many old classic cars that have that level of. It looks nice, doesn't it? Just the smoothness, and a lot of old cars yeah. don't look that nice in no. the same way. They look nice. You go, oh, that's a cool old car, but really, that's it's a timeless shape, isn't it? They've always tried to, to, yeah. to kind of copy in every every one of their cars. Um, but yeah, it's a, yeah, phenomenal car. So that leads me on to the uh, well another another Bond car, which is significantly lesser, lesser used than the, the DB5, and that is the V8 Vantage Volante, the Aston Martin. Uh, this was this was came about um, quite a gap actually after the last time that an Aston Martin had, had appeared in a, a Bond film, and that was the third Aston Martin used in the Bond the Bond series and interestingly this car the V8 Vantage Volante was it's quite different from a lot of the other Aston Martin cars because it came quite a long time after the last time that we'd seen an Aston Martin in Bond there was a very big gap between between when it was used in Living Daylights with with Tim Dalton 
And the last time that uh, uh, an Aston Martin was used, which was on a Manchester Secret Service, which was the Aston Martin DBS. So, as you mentioned, Roger Moore in the Bond films, yeah, he may have used one in the Cannibal Run, never used an Aston Martin throughout his whole tenure as Bond. <laughs> which, when we found this out, I thought was very strange. I, I, in my head, I'd never actually put that together. But, yeah, massive gap for Aston Martin. And, and when you look at the Aston Martin Bond link, which is probably, if not, well, probably the most perfect link between a brand and a film series in history to to realize that um, the the longest tenure of any bond didn't have one it's quite a strange strange scenario but i imagine that the same thing that happened with gold goldeneye where they brought it back uh, the aston martin db5 back this is the kind of thinking that they had at living daylights it was a new bond it was a new era they wanted to to bring back that kind of sense of you know the original bond back to to the films um but it wasn't the db5 or the dbs they brought back it was the it was the v8 vantage volante not really as classic as 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 those cars and and some of the ones that that came up later and um it came after the use of the lotus which was probably the most prominent car that was used in in the roger moore in the roger moore film so quite a quite a big shift from that lotus design and, and roger moore's um and how he's used cars Interestingly, and this is a common theme with Bond and cars, the they never really planned it very well. So there was an 18-month waiting list for the Aston Martin uh, V8, and they didn't they didn't wait they didn't plan it ahead 18 months. So they were very late to the table when they decided we're going to go for an Aston Martin in this film. So they 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 couldn't really get hold of. Um, an Aston Martin, uh, th- th- this V8 Vantage Volante, easily they couldn't just get them in. So they bought sourced and bought three used. Uh, three used models of the car for filming they couldn't get new ones off of um aston martin um and one was used with uh, was outfit with gadgets another was stunt vehicle and used for the and, the, and they began ch- filming the chase scene in austria with with that car for the living daylights a total of 11 cars were used though only three of which were real drivable vehicles so a lot of them were just were just props used for various scenes uh, one was an unmodified vantage used for filming scenes with timothy dalton and the special effects car which is built was complete with missiles and rockets rocket boosters things like that we'll go through the gadgets in a bit and i'll see if you actually remember any of the gadgets so start thinking about them now <laughs> inside the other vehicles there were they were basically just steerable chassis without an engine so the uh, and the rest were fiberglass mock-ups produced at pinewood uh, at the beginning of the film the car is first introduced as a v8 volante uh, it's a convertible uh, the car used in these scenes was a volante owned by the aston martin chairman martin lagonda uh, the two different Aston Martin models we used for filming were the convertible and later for the Czechoslovakian scenes, a hard top non-Volante V8 saloon badged to look like a Volante. So if you remember in the film, you probably won't. There's a scene where Q is putting the top on the convertible so it doesn't confuse the viewer. So he's basically in the start of the film, he's using the convertible and then they go to this saloon and they have to say, we're building this on to winterize the uh, the car because he's going to the snow, isn't he? But really, it's just a, so it doesn't look weird. The Vantage series actually is returning in No Time to Die as well. There's actually quite a few Aston Martins in No Time to four, Die. I'm quite four interested. in total. Four. And I, I, I'm not, I, when I looked at that, I thought, is that a bit strange? Are they just trying to stick in as many Aston Martins as possible for some sort of contractual like reasons? Off. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's that's coming back, and uh, I, I I couldn't remember. You've probably, unless you've looked at a picture recently or watched the film, you probably can't in your head remember exactly what the 
the car looks like it's it's not very similar to to the style of the the DB5. muscular looking car isn't it it's like a muscle car almost yeah. yes yeah a bit of a bit of a strange one but very dalton isn't it very muscular yeah very powerful um and then it obviously q put a load of extra missiles and stuff like that on it so can you remember any of the things that the car has on it? It has some quite weird things on it that aren't on. It's very, some very eighties things that aren't on the uh, CD player. It's not got a CD player. Delta never needed one. <laughs> a mug holder. No, it's not got a mug holder. It's got lasers, right? So it's got lasers concealed in the front port, and starboard wheel spinners are laser emitters capable of cutting through the chassis of any vehicle that dare to pull alongside Bond. That you remember those ones? It's got a heads-up display. Yes. Which isn't often uh, exists. An out trigger. I wasn't sure what this was, but as part of the winterization that Q does, this is kind of two skidoo things that come out the side. Yes. So you can, the car turns into like a skidoo. Uh, tire spikes, a rocket motor, a radio scanner. So he, so Bond can listen in on um, uh, other radio signals. Very modern, that one. Very useful. <laughs> uh, reinforced chassis and uh, self-destruct mechanism, which the Lotus Esprit had as well. Uh, which is interesting. So yeah, that that was the the, van, the the Vantage. Never got used again, apart from the when it's coming up in No Time to Die, and isn't perhaps one of the most memorable of of the, of the Aston Martin Bond cars. It's definitely it's not one that I imagine if they'd done Casino Royale and he he won a, <laughs> a, a V8 Vantage, you'd probably not have had the kind of David Arnold might not have bothered sticking the Bond theme on that. But <laughs> no, but it's I mean it's 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 a nice part of the the Aston Martin legacy of Bond showing that they have to use different cars and with, within the storyline but yeah definitely not one of the, the the more impressive ones and later on it moves on to there's more, there's lots more Aston Martins that come in and the shape does actually become a bit more similar to the early ones so the next one I've got here uh, is the Aston Martin V12 Vanquish which you probably remember as the main car in Die Another Day yeah and it this is quite an interesting one because it came after a three-year deal, the three-year deal with BMW. So there was three years with uh, the, the the three film deal, sorry, um, with BMW, where the they used to be BMW instead of Aston Martin cars for the for GoldenEye, Toronto Dies, and World's Not Enough. So bringing back Aston Martin after those is quite a big deal, and they obviously a lot of talking went in to that to bring that back into that film. And it's the first James Bond film to feature an Aston Martin as the Bond car. So that we talked about there being Bond. Bond does use Aston Martins in the the, what, the films before that, but they're not his main car. It's, BMW is the main car in those ones. Kind of what he had in License to Kill. Need to need to check up on that one. I'll look it up now. But yeah, oh good. So yeah, the, the Aston Martin V12 Vanquish. Yeah, nice looking car. Very nice looking car. And it was produced from 2001 to 2005. The V12 Vanquish was replaced by the DBS in 2007, which I think you'll be talking about, Brendan. I will indeed. Um, With the Vanquish name being revived in 2012 for the successor to the DBS. Um, It also appeared in the 2002 video game Nightfire, which I know that you both remember with very fond memories. But you can only drive it in the console version, interestingly. Uh, it's also in 2004's game Everything or Nothing. It was playfully nicknamed the Vanish um, in Dying Another Day because of its clever adaptive camouflage feature. Very popular mm. uh, gadget on that car. Uh, the car would go on to be heavily featured in the movie, especially during the Iceland segment where the car is involved in an elaborate chase with Jaguar XKR, driven by the villain's henchman, Zao. Or Zao, I can never remember uh, how to pronounce that. So, whilst the standard car came with rear-wheel drive and a massive 5.9-litre V12 engine, 
Uh, the one for used to filming was uh, equipped with four-wheel drive and Ford sourced 300 uh, BHP V8 in order to increase traction on the ice because it wouldn't be able to hold uh, or be able to drive around the ice um, very well. The Aston Martin and the Jaguar were completely stripped of engine and running gear and yeah, so that was just to make sure that they could actually film that, that stunt scene out on the ice. Um, in Goldfinger, the original Q, this is an interesting fact, the original Q tells, uh, Q tells James Bond that he never jokes about his work while introducing the ejection seat feature of the first Aston Martin. In Dino of the Day, his successor, John Cleese, which isn't really his successor, <laughs> also reminds James Bond that, like his predecessor, he never jokes about his work while introducing the, invis- while introducing the invisibility feature of the newest Aston Martin. So that's a nice little nod back to the, to the old days. There's a, another interesting fact. When Q walks in, uh, behind the invisible Aston Martin in the abandoned underground station, due to the light refraction effect, he appears briefly to do a silly walk, which is a reference to the sketch he does as um, in Monty Python. Very good. <laughs> I've not seen that, but I might, well, I'll say I might watch that later. I'm not going to watch that later. I'm saving the die another day viewing for when you two are free. Uh, <laughs> uh, one of uh, they cost two. Uh, they cost around two hundred sixteen thousand pounds, and one of them was written off by a stuntman, where he lost control during the chase across the frozen lake in Iceland. So, expensive one. The most interesting thing I found is uh, about the, the, the Vanquish um, and the and the film and the cars in general is that um, Ford owned Premier Automotive Group, which then included Aston Martin, Jaguar, Land Rover, and Volvo. So the film is like a show off of all of their cars because obviously. The, the, I, I can't remember a Volvo being in there, but the other ones, they, they pro, they're featured quite prominently. So it's just a big showing. It's, that deal is just massive of, of all those cars. But mm-hmm. obviously the Aston Martin taking... Well, the Land Rovers taking the, come back in the Craig era, don't they? They're all they're always Land Rovers, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, I didn't realise that that was part of the same group um, at, at the time. So, they want, so Ford wanted to show off multiple cars uh, as part of the film, which is a pretty smart idea. So yeah, um, gadgets, do you remember what, was, what gadgets were on it? On the Vanquish, apart from the invisible car, you're not getting a point for the invisible heat car. seeking missiles. Uh, there are onboard missile launchers. Yeah. Yep. Um, there are also. Uh, it's got machine guns. It's got shotguns. Didn't know about that. There is a. It's fitted. Anything out the back? Is it what? Sorry. Anything shooting out the back? Like ice? Yeah, I think the missiles come. Oh no, they're marbles. Front, front facing marbles. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> it's actually not too much on it, really. I think there's an ejector seat. Mm. Um, so yeah, lots of gadgets on it. It was used quite a lot in the film. Actually, it was one of the one of the more prominent uses of a bond a bond car in a film because he uses it quite a lot throughout, which which doesn't always happen. Um, an interesting thing, uh, fact about Brosnan in this, and I don't know how true this is because I read a few different accounts of this, and um, they vary slightly. But basically, Brosnan wanted the car, and he said to um, <laughs> he said to he said to his agent, "Look, get get." Aston Martin to give me a copy of that. Give me, give me one of those cars for myself, and um, they didn't. They didn't want to give him one. So I think there was some. He, he was like, he said he wasn't going to say anything nice about the car if anyone asked him, and, and all this stuff. I can't imagine Brosnan doing that. But um, eventually, he got to keep one. So he got his own. Um, he got his own Vanquish, and yeah. So Brosnan got it. But unfortunately, and I seem to remember him saying we this were, I think on the Esquire gold. thing. The Esquire, the gold, the GoldenEye um, commentary did, but uh, that it, it actually burnt. The, the car burnt down. Um, it was a fire. Yeah, and all he's got is the nameplate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, that's that's that's. If that was true, it might be karma. But um, 
Yeah. So, but that's that's the end of uh, his car. But imagine that just being Bond and going, I want one of those. £215,000 car. Yeah, no worries. But there is, I did read an article about that said that he took it as like a money off of his actual paycheck to have it. Right, yeah, right. But I don't. That's what he tells the tax man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, interesting, interesting car. And it's probably one, it's not, it's not one of my favourite, but it is a nice looking car. And you can kind of see it that kind of style of it looks very it's got the similar curves and stuff that you that you get in the earlier cars like the db5 and it's obviously takes a lot from those but yeah it's a it's a really nice car and for for motorheads these days uh those watching die another day it's probably a pretty cool sports car in the you know that whole that's that film series fast and the furious it fits very nicely into that if you like cars you're gonna like this car so yeah, really nice car, um, and that was that was the last time we we saw that for a while, and that it's, leads us uh, on to and then it's vanished, disappeared. Yeah, <laughs> brilliant, nice. I'm glad that um, you got that one in there. Um, so that yeah. so that so that's it for uh, die another day, and that takes us on to what have we got next? Yeah, the next the natural progression of the uh, into the next film, which Casino Royale, where they use the Aston Martin DBS V12 which was the successor to The mm. Vanquish, uh, was used in Quantum of Solace also. Um, so this, this again, was a, was a prototype. So the car wasn't released at the time of the filming, so they, they only delivered two working cars to the set of, of Casino Royale and had to prepare development DB9s to use as lookalikes for DBSs um, for the stunt cars. Because I don't, the, the, one of the key scenes, one of the mem- most memorable scenes, is the uh, the the car when it does the flip. Yeah. Oh yeah. In, in that chase. Record breaking. Yeah. Exactly. So the stunt driver who performed the stunt um, that was projected by an air cannon, uh, which was located behind the driver's seat, and then it, it pushes the the car through the air at the moment uh, of the of the crash. Incredible. And it went through the air at seventy miles per hour. And then the car rotates seven times while being filmed, uh, and is a is a Guinness World Record. Yeah, Roger Moore only manages is... one turn, doesn't he, in uh, Marathon? <laughs> <laughs> Which is is pretty I- incredible. It's an amazing scene. Um, so to practice to get that right, they were given a prototype DB9, which was given to the stunt drivers so they could practice. Not, not the crash. I imagine you can't just keep smashing Aston Martins up for fun, nah, unless um, you uh, Piers Brosnan. <laughs> so, in terms of special features, it's pretty scant. There's not a lot going on with this one. Mm. So, you've got uh, an emergency uh, Walther P99, yep, and a medical kit with a defibrillator. That's Bond back to basics, isn't it? Well, I'd say it is I'd- stripped back. That's that's what Die Another Day did, wasn't it? They they went too far, and then the next too time far. they said, if somebody said anything like, "Oh, we want to add in a, you know, put a helicopter, get out," not having that on there, <laughs> yeah. we just get back to the standard car, please. Um, but that's 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 Casino Royale all over, isn't it? Getting back to basics. It, yeah, and and that's but that's all this needed. It, it just a nice, you know, it looks like a classic Aston Martin as well because yeah. it's, it's not much hasn't moved on much from the from the Vanquish in terms of the way it looks yep. it's just got all those gadgets absolutely stripped away um, and is mo- much more practical for what it needs to be so the car is then used in 
the opening scene of Quantum Best of Solace. Quantum of Solace. Yes, so good. Yep. Yes, that, that yeah. car chase. High octane action. So a slightly different coloured one. It's um, a dark grey one this time. So it's not the not considered the same car. The exact same. Well, he smashed it to bits, didn't he? So, <laughs> so again, this car is also wrecked after being chased down and absolutely barrage of abuse from the from the villains. So not only did it get wrecked in in the movie, it also got wrecked. One of them also got wrecked in real life when they were delivering one of the DBSs to Lake Garda. One of the guy delivering it just drove it into the lake. <laughs> what? Oh, <laughs> Imagine being the the producer on the phone to, to when that happened. What? We told you to be careful. How did you do that? <laughs> yeah. You, you, I mean, you at least at least get the camera rolling. Get it on. Yeah, get yeah, on don't waste it. Yeah. There's another set piece. Um, so according to Aston Martin, the DBS is not of the understated elegance of the DB9, nor the youthful agility of the V8 Vantage. It is an explosive power in a black tie and has its own unique character, which will equal that of James Bond. So I think by this time... Aston Martin are really full, fully on board with the being associated with Bond, as it's it, you know their press release comes out and mentions Bond with the release of the actual car. So they got seven DBS cars were used in Quantum of Solace. So they go through they go through a fair bit of motor <laughs> they a, when they're making these. They need a bit. They need a few cars, don't they? Yeah, they do. And then moving forward, the DBS is driven by new double O agent Nomi, played by Lashana Lynch. Oh, okay. In no time That's to die. one of the four. So, no time to die. Aston Martins, isn't it? Yeah, that isn't. Yeah, yeah. And I'm right in thinking the DBS. Yeah, the DBS. The, the origins. That, that's the car that Lazenby drives, and yeah, and Diamonds Are Forever. Mm-hmm. That's that's the DBS in that as well, isn't it? They're sort of. I guess this one's the spiritual successor, is it? Um, there is. There isn't one in Diamonds Are Forever, is there? I think. Yeah. Well, anyway, it's the same. D- well, anyway, the, the one from Honor Majesty's Secret Service is a DBS, and I guess yeah. they've just reused the name, right? Yeah. 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 And just put V12 yeah. on it. So then, moving forward to Spectre, where they use Aston Martin DB10. So this was unveiled by Sam Mendes and Barbara Broccoli as part of the official press launch. So at Pinewood. Um, and Mendes introduced the car as the first cast member, mm. which is quite nice. Not very nice to poor, poor Daniel. Daniel. <laughs> 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 um, so Aston Martin also took part in the launch of the Bond in Motion exhibition. I was going to mm. bring this up, actually. The Bond in Motion exhibition is amazing. If you've any interest in the cars, you have to go to this exhibition in Covent Garden. It is amazing. Yeah, I've, I've, I've not been, but it, I'm reading up about it, it does seem incredible. Yeah. We'll go, well, we're going to have to go and have a trip now so we can see all these uh, ones we've been talking about. So this was, um, this, the DB10 was manufactured specially to celebrate the 50-year partnership with Bond Films franchise. Wow. Ever since the, the DB, DB5 was used. Uh, only 10 DB10s were made in total, and eight of those were used for Spectre. Wow. And the other two uh, were just show cars, so it really is a bespoke That's Aston Martin. Phenomenal. That just well, shows you how powerful that marketing, that partnership is for Aston Martin that they do that. It's, it's finally yeah. time for me to tell my James Bond being on the James Bond set story. 
Oh, here we go. Is, yeah. this one in. Is that's the car I, I've sat in that car because I went to Rome to see them filming the the Rome chase sequence in Spectre. Wow. It was oh, all really good. it was all second unit stuff, but they had all the cars there, and I got to sit in that one. And yeah, they have about ten different versions of it. And from what I understand, it cost, each car for that film, the Aston Martin, cost a million pounds. And the way that the you've been in it, and I've been in it, yeah. And and the deal that they have with Aston Martin, I could be wrong, but this is how I remember it: is there's no money exchanges hands. Aston Martin give them the cars to put in the film, and then that's just free advertising for Aston Martin. So. From yep. what I understand, yep. Eon doesn't pay Aston Martin. Aston Martin doesn't pay Eon to be in the film. It's just a mutually beneficial agreement. Yeah. Well, that's that's why the Aston Martin relationship is so interesting, especially when you compare it with things like the BMW relationship, because that was a marketing relationship where they they promoted it. But Aston Martin, it's not a big company. It doesn't produce a lot of cars. It's not doing adverts all the time. It's just mm-hmm. the car. That's that's the the advertising. Yeah. It's just it's that car and. I suppose it's 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 a it's a beautiful relationship that Bond has with the, the the Aston Martins, but it's not that it doesn't get a, it doesn't get a lot out of it other than using the car. And that's it. That's really Bond needs to have the Aston Martin, but then there's no money or, or marketing that's coming out of it. It's just having that car, which is amazing when you think about it. When BMW were doing millions and millions of pounds worth of advertising for for Bond at the time, and Aston Martin don't have to. Yeah, well, I guess they they see the Bond films as so important as their brand image and the way they market yeah. so they do have adverts it's just every three or four years it's a, a, a bond movie yeah. which is which is great um so the aston martin db10 in the film wasn't actually intended for 007 well it was until he went rogue and then it was reassigned to 007 so it was bonds then it wasn't and then he steals it yeah and then he's he's pursued across uh the city in the chase with uh mr hinks yep Good scene. Where he, have, where yeah, where again he destroys the car. I I can't <laughs> stop a, thinking that at some point Daniel has had to wipe some crisps that Butler's left on the seat <laughs> after going in <laughs> and he's filming. I, I won't be able to watch the film without thinking that. There, listen, Daniel Craig was not there. <laughs> <laughs> so in in the movie, uh, because he's he's stolen the DB10 during that chase, he tries to use the gadgets. So it's got a rear machine gun, but the ammunition has not been loaded, so he can't use it. Um, he does use the flamethrowers, and that's part of how he gets away from Mr. Hinks. He then escapes using the ejector seat and parachute, which is a nice mm. a nice callback to the DB5. So there was one of the DB10s was sold in 2016 at Christie's in London for $3.5 million. Wow. Wow. So don't do too $2.5 million. Pounds. So it was initially expected to sell uh, between $1.4 million and $2.15 million. So it exceeded expectations yeah. massively. And, that, and that's for the Bond one, isn't it? That's that's for the Bond, because they're, they're all the ones used in Bond. There's no more produced. But yeah. but even in, even in some of the other, even, even with a DB5 where there's a lot more produced, even if it's nothing to do with Bond, it's still worth loads and mm. loads of money. Whereas if you look at something like the BMWs used... You can pick those up for a few thousand pounds now, because there's so many of them made. They're just they're just widespread ones. I was looking at them the other day, thinking, do I just buy one? (laughs) (laughs) You can't even drive. What are you on about? (laughs) (laughs) I'll put it in the um, I'll put it in the uh, front garden with the Aston Martin that I can't drive. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, 
moving on from that, we've got the Aston Martin Valhalla, which features in No Time to Die when that eventually is released. So this is a uh, sports car that manufactured in a collaboration with Red Bull and Aston Martin. So in terms of where it sits, it's just below their flagship track car. And it's electric, uh, isn't it? Val- Valkyrie. Is it? It's electric, yeah. yes. So so this is intended to be more usable as an everyday car. <laughs> I mean, it and, looks like uh, a spaceship. I mean, you're not going to be taking that to Aldi. It looks like a spaceship and costs $2 million, <laughs> but... Mm. One for, one yeah, for going to uh, Aldi. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, as we said earlier, it's going to appear alongside three other Aston Martins, uh, DB5, DBS, and the V8. So the the actual car is planned to enter production late 2021 as a 2022 model. It so, might come out before the film. Yeah. <laughs> quite possibly. <laughs> um, again, this is only going to be limited production. They're only going to make 500 vehicles. Mm. Um, but then at two million a pop, that's still not many people quite a tasty that uh, profit. Good, there's not many people on that mailing list, I imagine. <laughs> no. So it's got a top speed of 220 miles per hour, which is pretty impressive. But it it, it looks different. Yeah, mm-hmm. you can tell it. You can tell it's an Aston Martin, just about. Mm. It looks very much like a high. It, from what I understand, it's a hypercar. It's very much a performance car, isn't it? It's yeah. not like the DB10 yeah. or or what have you. And from no. what I understand, they don't even drive it in No Time to Die. It literally appears in a wind tunnel. I think probably in Q's lab, um, but. Oh, this, right. That's my this, guess. No time to yeah. die sounds like one big Aston Martin catalogue. <laughs> it's not a bad thing, but uh, certainly packing them in. Aston Martin colon No Time um, to Die. That's what the film's really yeah. called. <laughs> <laughs> that's why it's been yeah. delayed. We're just waiting for them to make the first one. <laughs> so the it's got a Formula One style steering wheel as well. So I mean, if we're not going to see the car in action, we're probably not going to see the interior. Mm. It's just well, if, we, if we're not going to see the car in action, I don't really want to see the interior. It seems like, oh, yeah, come and have a look at this Bond. Very nice. Lovely interior. Lovely plush seats. Yeah, what's that leather? Why don't you drink my Perrier while I'm having a look? <laughs> um, yeah, so that, that's that's all there is for the Valhalla because hmm. we haven't seen it yet. No. So we'll, uh, we'll, we'll reconvene on that when, it's, uh, when the film comes out. So yeah. unless it really is just a background shot. Have we finished the letter A then? Are we are we done? I think we're done with A now, yeah. Wow. We're done. For now, yeah. unless until we revisit A. <laughs> I'm um, sure there'll be things that again. people will want to want to hear more about uh, in the letter A and we uh, like we say yeah. we are we are only brushing over the surface of these subjects really. So um yeah. the, and, yes. and apologies to anyone listening who is a a car fan because we're not really car fans. <laughs> so you may have noticed noticed us talking about horsepower um, uh, top speeds and things where we don't really know if that's good or not. So no. um, apologies to no. any uh, to any big car fans out there. Um, and if you want to correct us on our our loose car knowledge, then uh, please send us an email and uh, we'll 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 mention it next time. <laughs> um, but next time, lads, the big one, our first special, first special, oh, yeah, a view yes. to a kill, a view, a view to a kill, a view to a kill. Yeah, I'm actually really, yeah, really scraped to this. in there with the A. What? It scraped in there with the A, right, didn't yeah, it? Because right. many people refer to it as "view to a yeah, kill." Yeah, but we're good. that's what we're going to do next. It's. Uh, I've, I've actually. I'm quite looking forward to this, but it's a very strange. If you're doing a, a chronological order of Bond and you started on a view to a kill, 
That's a strange place to start. Imagine if you'd never seen a Bond film before <laughs> and somebody said, here's James Bond, you'll like it, a view to a kill. <laughs> who is? What? Yep. So it's about, you'd watch one and that's it. So it's about done. an 80-year-old man who's a spy. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be... A... And who's that, his daughter? <laughs> no, that's his love interest. Yeah. Let's say he's got Christopher well, Walken. He's he? got Christopher Walken in it, Grace Jones. Come on, there's going to be a lot to talk about. Yeah. It's going to be an interesting yeah. one. So that's going to be a, our, our first special where we... We, we as a as a trio we talk through the film about how it was made who was in it uh, and how it was received so uh, quite looking forward to that one and, and we'll uh, share our, our opinions on it as well i guess if we have and to our opinions, yeah. <laughs> yeah well thank you for listening we hope you enjoyed uh the show uh this latest episode of the james bond a to z podcast if you'd like to email the show you can get us on bond a to z podcast at gmail.com and if you've got any ideas or suggestions or things we've missed, do let us know and we will pick it up in our in later podcasts if we deem it interesting enough. So thanks for listening and we will uh, see you next time. Catch you later. Uh, please like and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. Leave us a review. And um, yeah, even if you don't like it, please leave us a review and let us know what we're doing wrong. <laughs> thanks for listening. <laughs> Thank you. Catch you later. James Bond will return. James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy, and Tom Wheatley. The podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley, with music by Tom Ingemels, and artwork supplied by Helen Dolly. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.